Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer with Vortis Sound Studios. Good day to you. I hope you're doing well in your world, wherever is happening, where you are. I hope you're safe and happy. Today, I have an interview with Stephen of Tortree's Audio Mastering. So we're chatting about what is a mastering engineer? What does a mastering engineer do? Things like that. It's a really good conversation about mastering and that kind of final part of the process once the mix is done, but before it goes to release. There's a wide ranging conversation here about all sorts of topics. Too much for me to try and summarise here. I'm just going to say let's go for it. Here we go, my chat with Stephen. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by Stephen of Tall Trees Audio Mastering. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Excellent. There's no problem. The great place to start, I think, with anyone is how did you get into music? What kind of inspired you to become a mastering engineer? They're almost two separate questions, but not quite, I guess. Um, so like most people, I guess, I got into music really early. I, my dad was a guitarist and um, I started playing in bands when I was a sort of 13, 14 or whatever, and little little punk bands and stuff like that, you know. And as the years went on, uh, I decided that I wanted to do it professionally. So I did everything I could to make that happen. And um, for quite a few years, I was a semi-professional touring musician, I guess. Nice. And the journey into being a mastering engineer came a lot later, actually. I'd moved to... I used to live in Bristol for a long time. Oh, yeah. It's a great, great music scene in Bristol. It is. It's a fantastic city and a really fantastic music scene. It's um, full of just lovely, fantastic people. It's, yeah, it's really great. But I moved to Liverpool. I was still touring and stuff like that. And I just, I'll be honest, I just started to fall out of love with it a little bit. And I didn't have any kind of backup plan because... Well, because it's you've got to be so single-minded to even kind of get to that stage, don't you? And uh, yeah, I didn't have any backup plan whatsoever. And I got married, I got a dog, and then, you know, we wanted to start a family. And I just thought, this this just doesn't fit with this anymore. I'm not enjoying walking out the door anymore and, you know, not coming back for a few weeks. So yeah, a bit of a crisis point. And I was sitting with a friend, we were just talking about it, and and he sort of said, well, you know, what What do you want your day to look like? How do you want your interaction with music to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we talked through it. And he said, well, have you thought about being a mastering engineer? And I thought, no. But <laughs> all of a sudden, that seems quite appealing. And it was just a, yeah, just a light bulb moment, actually. Because I'd obviously spent a lot of time in studios over the years and recording and stuff, you know, being a musician. So I knew the um i knew the kind of environment that it was and i i knew what kind of job it was so i just completely immersed myself in it and spent the next few years just just learning basically learning how to do it and so a mastering engineer you became <laughs> yes and I, it's one of those things that uh yeah when do you start saying i'm a mastering engineer it's like well when you've mastered a record i guess <laughs> I guess that's the point um it's it's an unusual move because a lot of mastering engineers start off doing mixing or production or things like that but you went straight from i'm a musician to i'm a mastering engineer it's a very unusual move i have to say do you think i th I, I mean i don't know i 
that's my, from what I've seen people do. Yeah. Yes. I, I think, no, you're right. There, there is a lot of, I think a lot of people make the move from production or well, not even necessarily make the move, but incorporate it into what they do. I think there's the, that's obviously very common, isn't it? You, people who record and, and mix um, will learn it as an extra string to their bow, which has massive advantages and obviously disadvantages as well, of course. But yeah, I just, I think, I think the two, I think it makes sense. In, in my mind, it makes sense to go from being a musician to a mastering engineer because you're bypassing all of that really detailed sort of getting that far into the song, if you, yeah. see what, if you see what I mean. So when you're a musician, I mean, I often make the comparison. I almost see mastering as the same mindset of, of improvising music in that you are hearing something and then you are instinctively reacting to it. So even though there's a hugely technical side to mastering, like ultimately it's about just being able to close your eyes and listen and react to what you're hearing. It's a it's a creative approach, isn't it? I think so, yeah. It's, it's things like, um, dare I say, Lander, don't give you necessarily, is that creative human touch. Exactly. And there's two, I mean, there are obviously two sides to mastering. There is a highly technical side that you have to get right, but it is only a part of it. You could quote-unquote master a track and it would be absolutely perfect in terms of the um, the figures and all of that sort of stuff. But without someone reacting to it, from a musical point of view and from an emotional point of view, yeah, that it, that gets lost and it, it makes the biggest difference, of course. So to kind of, I guess, take a step back and ask a more fundamental question for those who might not know who are listening – what is mastering what, it's a mysterious process to some it, yeah it is and I, I don't i don't think it really needs to be but i think it's the stuff that we're talking about it's you can define it in technical terms but it's a lot there's a lot more to it than that i think and i think that's what's what people find mysterious about it because it's just quite difficult to define there are two ways of looking at it i think that i think the more technical way to describe it is it's the last stage between your finished mix and your record. So you've got, you've got your mix. It sounds great, but then how do you get that mix from a bounce down WAV on your computer onto a CD or onto a piece of vinyl or on, you know, it's, it's that bit, (laughs) (laughs) that, that bridge and everything that's involved in that. And I think, it's not just one thing. It's not just doing a bit of EQ and a little bit of compression to make the file better. It's not just that. It's the preparation of the files. It's the making sure everything's ready technically. It's the admin, the organization, the metadata. It's all that stuff as well. So, and again, it's one of those things that you can't really, <laughs> you can't really pass that off onto an algorithm because it's this, you know, it's too much information. So I think, I think more people now seem to be aware that mastering is a thing but i'm not entirely sure more people really understand what it is yeah if you see what i mean i think the other analogy that i like to use and this isn't mine by the way i did steal this from somebody (laughs) else and i shamefully can't remember who it is which is really awful actually it was someone who's a more experienced mastering engineer than i i think and they made the analogy that it was like bringing a painting to be hung in a gallery so you've done your painting and it looks amazing 
but that's not it. In, in order to get it into the exhibition, you have the gallery curator who can influence what kind of frame it has that would really bring out the best of the painting, where in the gallery it would be hung so that people can get the best view of it, what kind of lighting to put on it so that, you know, the detail can be brought out, all of that stuff. That's nothing to do with how good your painting is, but it's all about the context in which it's placed. And I kind of feel that's the same with mastering. Like It's about making your mix, put it in its best light in the context of the wider musical world. And I guess what makes it so difficult to define is that what that actually practically means really does depend on the song and what you get and how it's been mixed and all those things. Sometimes, I guess, sometimes it's what you end up doing is a lot more technical. And then sometimes I imagine what you end up doing is a lot more creative and less technical in that regard. Yes, definitely. And it's about, I mean, it's just about the decisions, I think. It's rarely about equipment or anything like that. It's it's definitely about decisions, which is what it goes back to what I was talking about, about being reactive. And it's also why you would send the same mix out to five mastering engineers and get five different sounding things back. Because there is quite a lot of subjectivity. Even though the technical side, there isn't. <laughs> but there's still that creative side where there definitely is. What does mastering give you that mixing doesn't? Because I think a lot of bands, especially when they're starting out, will kind of get into the idea of home recording and will go, great, we, we've got a few mics, we can make a record, we can mix it, and then at the end of that we have a WAV file that we can upload but that's not necessarily the way it works. So what, what does it give you? What's that benefit that mixing doesn't give you? First of all, sometimes that can be enough. You can, of course, make a mix and then bounce it out as a WAV and it would sound absolutely fantastic. But I would say, <laughs> much more often than not, it's a massively good idea to get somebody else to, to master it. So what does it give you? So, well, first of all, mastering is... I see it as a specialist skill. It's not just an extension of mixing. I, I'm not very good at mixing. Like <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm okay, but I would never charge someone to, to mix a record. I just, um, you know, I'm not very good at it. So mastering is a speciality, I think. It's something that certain people immerse their entire time in, into the craft. And that, I mean, that for a start, you're getting someone who is, who that is their speciality. <laughs> and the reason why that's important is that, first of all, you get that impartial set of ears and hopefully experienced ears as well. You know, you've got someone who, who knows a lot about music, who knows what music should sound like to be able to listen to your mix out of context and be able to make the decisions to, to like I said, to, to give it that kind of, um, to make it sound good in the context of the wider musical world. The other important thing on a technical level is that they'll have a different monitoring environment. So any problems with your room that you've mixed your record in, if you try and master it in the same room or whatever on the same pair of speakers, those same problems will, will be there. Um, so you've got that, so that can be easily, easily pointed out. And also, this, the mastering engineer doesn't have any emotional attachment to the mix. So... <laughs> the mastering engineer was not there when you spent an entire afternoon making the snare sound amazing <laughs> to the point where it sounds so brilliant that you haven't even noticed that it's too loud. So the mastering engineer can just go, well, the snare's too loud. 
<laughs> like the, 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 they haven't seen all of that kind of like you know the work that went into making it sound so brilliant you know they've just they can just hear it too loud so it's all of those things it's impartiality i think and uh, yeah a different context the thing i say to bands is if they have absolutely no money to make a record but they really want to do it then they need to have someone else a friend preferably someone who's kind of understands music to give it a listen on their own speaker system or their own headphones and give some comments but i guess a mastering engineer is like taking that a step forward it's giving it to someone who can sure listen and make those comments and say those things but then also has the power to improve it (laughs) yeah or at least has the knowledge to be able to tell the band what what needs to be improved i think that's the thing because yeah you're right i mean anyone can can listen to a a friend can listen to a song. Yeah, it sounds really good, but you know, it, it sounds a bit like in the bottom. <laughs> Whereas a mastering engineer could go, well, if you did this and you concentrated on these frequencies in these instruments and maybe change those, then you'd be in a better place. And either that's something that the mastering engineer could do themselves or could send, you know, much better is to send a, an email back or whatever suggesting how to improve the mix yeah and i think if a band is we'll come on to this in a bit but if a band is looking to hire a mastering engineer and the first thing they get after submitting some music is suggestions of what to improve the mix and how to just alter some things don't be offended i think that's a really important important thing to take away yeah i mean i'd also i'd, I'd go one step further and and it's not just about don't be offended be really pleased that you've picked a mastering engineer who will do that rather than just kind of try and do their best, send it back and go, there you go, it's done. For me, the, it's every single time, the more communication that I have with an artist about their master, the better the results are. Every single time, like without fail. What it comes down to, from a band's perspective, what you, what, what you have to think about is that the mastering engineer is there to help you as a band sound as good as you possibly can. So he or she is making suggestions that is just going to improve the song. It's not that they think you've done necessarily done a bad job. It's just ways to improve it and make it that bit better. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no no mastering engineers are sitting there loading up mixes and laughing. Like, <laughs> no no one's doing that. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's exactly it. I think that's, again, tying it back to being a musician, my my role in lots of bands previously was my strength was always in arranging and, and and editing the song to try and kind of make the song its best shape. So this isn't a million miles away from that in terms of thought process. You're just sort of, you know, you're listening to a mix and just going, right, how can the mix is there? It's all really good. How can we just push it into being really fantastic? You know, you're never listening to a mix going like, God, what are these idiots doing? Like you just, just, you just don't think like that. <laughs> So I feel like we've sort of delved into this question already, but it's worth asking, what makes a good mastering engineer? There's loads of them around, so it's it can be hard to know, I guess, what, what to look for. I think a good mastering engineer needs to have a really vast knowledge of music, I think, because you need to understand what records should sound like. Not just, not just hitting the targets, but but what they should actually sound like. And I think that's probably the most important thing to just know. It's not, um, it's never gear. Like never, never go to a mastering engineer because of what gear they've got. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, um, it's not really that important. But you should go to someone who 
yeah, has, has a vast knowledge of music, a lot of experience of listening. You should try and find a mastering engineer who is willing to work with you and not just fire something back, like make it a collaboration. I mean, obviously, it, it's very important to have a good monitoring environment and, uh, you know, something that's significantly better than what you've mixed your record on. But yeah, I think it's, I think when you hire someone, when you contact someone, I think just try and establish your communication. Try and get a feel for whether you think you like this person and whether you feel like they understand the music that you're trying to make. Because not every mastering engineer is going to be perfect for every job. I mean, I think most, most mastering engineers, I think, would probably be able to do a good job on pretty much anything. However, there are certainly people who specialize in, in particular genres or whatever. And I come from kind of a more kind of rock background. Now, given, given a hip hop tune to master, like, sure, I could, I could do a good job, but my references wouldn't be anywhere near as strong as someone who specializes in that music, who really understands that world and knows exactly how all of this stuff sounds. So if a band came to me for that and got talking to me, it was soon established that it wasn't really my world. Then I would imagine they would want to go, well, okay, we'll, we'll probably look for someone else. And, and that's fine. <laughs> it's one of those things that's exactly like recording and mixing. It's that I'm fairly sure, say, a good mixing engineer could do a good job on something completely outside of their experience. But there's probably someone who can do it better. And I'm guessing that's exactly the same for mastering, that there's certain, there's certain things and certain approaches that is really genre dependent. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of a lot of mastering engineers will also know other mastering engineers as well. So if they can't do it, then chances are they could say, oh, not can't do it, but if, if they don't feel they're the right fit for the project, chances are they'll be able to suggest someone who they know and trust and go, well, this person's actually really good at this. Here's their contact details. I was perusing around on your website this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mostly said that so I could say the word perusing. And I, I noticed that... It's a great word. <laughs> it's a great word. And I noticed that you are, if I use the proper phrase, an Apple Digital Masters Certified Engineer. <laughs> I am indeed. And that's one of those phrases that I, I, I see around. And then sometimes you can go on iTunes and things like that. And you'll see that it has that kind of tag attached to a particular song but it's not entirely clear what that actually means <laughs> what's the benefits of working with a mastering engineer who is apple digital masters certified well from a technical point of view what it means is i have proved to apple <laughs> through a series of tests <laughs> that i'm able technically to create masters that are considered high res streaming to a quality that Apple strive for. So there'll be no intersample peaks, no clipping. It will be kept to a certain... It's a set of parameters, basically, that they give you a set of tools to use. Because it's all about the encoding process, because they encode into AAC. Um, and during that encoding process, there's... I mean, do, like any encoding process, there's, there are funny little artifacts and things like that that can be introduced. Apple have basically said, have <laughs> have bestowed upon me this this uh, this certification, which basically just says this person knows how to do this, and it's a little bit of extra um, 
like admin, I suppose. It's, well, not admin necessarily, it's, uh, of quality control, which is why people generally charge a little bit more for it. Because once you've created your master, you've then got to sort of put it through the Apple process and it will come out the other side and tell you whether you've done it right or not. And if you haven't, you've got to go back and, <laughs> and figure it out. <laughs> so, I mean, from a technical point of view, it's most mastering engineers would send you a a master which would sound great on Apple Music regardless. But from an actual kind of advantage to the artist point of view, a lot of the time, if you get badged with the Apple Digital Masters certification, it will give you an advantage of being put into playlists and stuff like that on Apple Music. Uh, okay. If nothing else, it's a mark of quality. Yeah. And it's also quite, um, any mastering engineer worth their salt would be able to produce these masters quite easily. But actually getting the certification is actually quite annoying. <laughs> so so it's uh, at least it shows dedication that someone's gone, I, I'm going to try and get this because uh, it's, yeah, it's, Weirdly, not that easy to get in contact with Apple. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, I've heard other people talk about this, and so I know it's a bit of a trade secret, so I won't delve too much into what you have to do as such to get that certification. But is it like just a essentially a big exam? <laughs> it is kind of like a big exam, yeah. It's not a big exam, but it's a little bit... Um, there isn't like a, um, a form you fill in. You've basically got to send them like a kind of long form email just kind of going this is how i work and this is how i would this is how i would create an apple digital master like sort of you know going through each technical point and and all the rest of it i did i did not know that was how you how wow yeah yeah <laughs> and so and so you you i guess you you also get as you said like a a super secret special bit of software that you have to run your masters through just to make sure it's all well interestingly enough it's not a super secret bit of software anyone can download it oh yeah if you go on to um if you go on to the apple site and look up apple digital masters there's a whole thing about what they are and how to make them it's, i mean this part of it is not in any way sort of secretive or cloak and dagger at all it's like it's all just laid out there completely you can download a zip file with all of the little the little apps and extensions that you can run files through and it explains to you how to use it and everything like that. So anyone can create them. They're not um and they're not tremendously difficult if you're following all of the sort of modern protocols for how you should how you should export masters anyway. You're probably not going to run into many problems. I will put a link to all that in the show notes. So if you are interested then go and have a, a read yeah it's, it's really interesting to, to have a to have a read and just and just see what happens at that process i, I will say to those of you who know nothing about mastering <laughs> it might be a lot of very dry technical information i'm just gonna warn you now <laughs> it is one of the most boring documents you'll ever read wow okay <laughs> well if you've got an afternoon and you fancy not not sleeping uh... <laughs> or sleeping very quickly very true say a band who's worked at home and mix their music at home approaches you with their song what are some of the common problems that you encounter with home recordings and home mixing there are a few that that crop up quite often that are, and they're all completely i mean they're completely understandable given the environments that which people work in a lot of the time a common problem is that the bass is too loud because the size of the speakers people tend to work on in, in home studios are quite small, so you can't really hear the bass that much, so you crank it up. 
And obviously people generally aren't mixing at home particularly loudly either because <laughs> because of neighbors and what have you. Um so that yeah that's a problem. I mean I I mean according to like the Fletcher Munson curve you'd think the treble would always be overbearing as well but it generally isn't actually. It's all it's it's always bass for some reason. Um more often than not I will slightly brighten a track up rather than roll the top end off which is interesting because like i said you you'd think it would be both but for some reason it isn't clipping is quite common you know people either mixing into limiters or um or just clipping into the red on their stereo out nothing sounds worse than digital clipping and you can't fix it yeah like you can't fix it in mastering i know uh you know, I know RX can can work magic and all the rest of it, but it's it's a compromise. Crops, people cropping things way too tight. Yeah, leave it leave a half a second each side. I think is uh, is good is good practice. Yeah, muddy muddy mixes in the sort of lower lower mids is quite common. I mean, that's common everywhere. That's not just home mixing. It's just a really difficult area to get right. Frequency balance between the vocal and the music is often tricky like the vocal will be really really bright but the music will be really really dull and that's difficult to to balance out in mastering i mean it's it's nearly impossible really i mean there are things you can do but uh yeah that's quite a common a common thing i guess once you've once you've got a stereo file if you've got one element that's really dark that needs brightening up and one element that's really bright that needs say more low end or or a bit rounding off on the top end and you've got a single stereo file where you need to do contradictory things to different elements that's when it becomes difficult yeah and sometimes sometimes you can get away with it and sometimes you just it's just impossible but again like a good i think a good mastering engineer shouldn't I mean, the way I always do it, I always have a go and always go, well, let's see if I can do something about this. But if I'm really, really digging in and fundamentally changing loads of stuff that's always going to be a compromise compared to doing it in the mix, then, yeah, I'll just send an email back saying, like, look, you know, if you did this to your mix, we'll get a much better master out of it. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really important thing. Say a band, again, is wanting to work with a mastering engineer at what point along the process would it be the best time to contact you? When you've finished your mix. I think that's... Um, finish your mix to the point where you go, I can't imagine this being any better. And once you've got it there, contact a master engineer and see if they can make it that a little bit better. And, oh yeah, but before before doing that, <laughs> don't worry about making it loud. It doesn't need to be loud. Like that's the that's the only thing you don't need to because people talk about. Um, I know a lot of mastering engineers aren't keen on uh, mix bus processing. I personally don't mind at all. Like if you've mixed into a certain compressor and that's giving it a nice sound, then then leave it. Like that that's it. But if you're mixing into something that's there solely for the purpose of just making it up loud. Yeah, you don't need it. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> As a mix engineer, I'm very glad you said that. Yeah, I just, I don't know why you take stuff off. Like if you've mixed into a really nice, like, you know, sort of SSL bus compressor or whatever, and that's really keeping everything nice and tight. Yeah, I mean, don't take it off. <laughs> I do rock music and then I'm always using an SSL mix bus compressor. And so 
as soon as uh, if I try turning it off, just to see what it's like, the entire mix kind of just falls apart. And I'm like, where's, where's it gone? How does that work? Yeah, exactly. And I just, I don't think, um, I think if you're doing it a lot and you know how to, um, you know, you know that kind of sound that you want, then yeah, I mean, it, it makes no sense to just take it away just for the for the sake of a mastering engineer. Um, I think the reason why some mastering engineers don't like it is because in a sort of um, home mixing environment, for example, you can't always hear exactly what that compressor's really doing. And some, and, and it is quite easy to overdo them. But again, it's just an email back, <laughs> just going like, you know, could you just back off that threshold a little bit? I mean, for, for anyone wondering, to my knowledge and you can contradict me if you like if you're at home and you're you want a master bus compressor but you're not sure if you're overdoing it or not i would definitely say don't try not to do more than four decibels of compression yes more than that and it's really going to affect the quality of what you're doing absolutely as a rule of thumb as a rule of thumb not always (laughs) I, i agree i agree i think that's that's decent i mean in a in a mastering context 4db is loads like i just yeah. kind of like almost bristled when you said that but um but yeah of course in a kind of mixed context it's um yeah i don't think that's that's a problem i mean i find myself these days not sort of rarely using compression sort of at all really because there's so many people uh, like the sound of compression and mix into compressors and have got compressors all over all of their buses and all the rest of it then by the time it gets to mastering it just doesn't need any more compression um, a bit of a bit of careful automation obviously sometimes goes a lot further than than using a compressor. And automation's a whole other ballgame, and I would highly recommend anyone who's mixing to look into it. Yeah, and mastering for that matter. Here's a big question. I don't I don't really know how to phrase it. Okay. So I'm just going to give it a go. The loudness wars mm-hmm. <laughs> are quite a thing in the sort of subject of mastering. Yes. So what are they for anyone who doesn't know, and why is it important to be aware of that in the mastering process. Okay, so the loudness wars are an attempt when I'm going to say CDs were the biggest format people listen to music on, when the introduction of CD changers and CD shufflers and CD jukeboxes and stuff like that were um, were a big thing. Because... When you hear something that's loud, it sounds better because it just does because you can hear more. Like you play two identical mixes next to each other and one of them is half a dB louder and that's it. People will always say the one that's half a dB louder. And when you ask them why, they'll say they'll hear more bass, they'll hear more clarity in the treble, et cetera, et cetera. And it's half a dB. That's it. So labels obviously wanted to their stuff to be louder so that when it came on on a CD shuffle, it just sounded amazing. And people were just like, wow, that's, you know, it really jumps out. It's really, really great. And it just got pushed further and further and further and further to the point where stuff was so, so loud <laughs> that dynamic range was being lost. Because obviously the, f- I mean, zero is, zero is zero. So the f- the further you push it into that, the less, the less dynamic range you get. And you had started ending up with lots and lots of stuff that was very squished. And it was particularly prevalent in kind of late 90s, early 2000s, I suppose. Yeah, mid-90s to early 2000s, it was, it was at, its, at its peak. I think people as well, I've heard people say, oh, you know, it was so that things would jump out on the radio. But that's not really, that doesn't really make any sense because radios always use compression and 
you know, all the rest of it. So. Balance things out, don't they? Exactly. So I, I genuinely think it was just CDs. I, I think that's that's what it was. So yeah, that's what the loudness wars actually are. I think it's just the striving to make your song that little bit louder than everyone else is, so that when it comes on in a shuffle situation, it sounds louder, therefore better. I think that the problem essentially was that everyone heard everyone else's songs being louder. And so they said, our song needs to be louder to be greater. <laughs> and I think that's that's the problem that a lot of bands will slip into. Or the fear that when their song comes on, it will sound small. It's kind of, it's more that really. It wasn't necessarily about wanting to sound better than everyone else. It was just not wanting to sound worse. So it's sort of keeping up with that, with those levels. So... Obviously, from a technical standpoint, things have changed. Not many people listen to CDs anymore. Although, I'm still quite a fan of the CD. They do sound great. I'm also a fan. I've got loads. If you've been listening to, like, just streaming Spotify or whatever for the last couple of years and you haven't listened to a CD, put one on. Because <laughs> you'll just go, wow, that sounds amazing. But yeah, obviously, so people are using streaming services more and more. It's like like 90 three percent or something now isn't it it's just just, yeah it's practically everybody and there are a lot of people saying oh great the loudness wars are now over because of normalization and things like that and that is both true and untrue (laughs) it's true in that if you have this normalization turned on then yes your stuff if it's really loud will get turned down and everything will be the the same volume and there won't be things jumping out you know so there's no point you might as well use those extra few db to get a bit more dynamic range and a bit more punch in your master but because those normalization switches aren't mandatory which they should be (laughs) uh, i think i think so that's my opinion (laughs) I, i agree to a point but yeah because they're not mandatory and because on some services they're not even on by default it's still very difficult to kind of uh, to convince someone who's in like a super loud rock band or whatever that their master doesn't need to be as loud as a Deftones CD from like, you know, 2002. <laughs> if it was mandatory, then I think that would be a, that, that really would be the end, I think, because there'd literally be no point. There'd be just no point in making anything loud. The problem with having a really small dynamic range fundamentally is that the quiet bits of your song won't sound that much quieter than the loudest bits of your song and so you won't have that impact that you want your flow the flow of your music to have absolutely yep that's completely completely true and i think i see but (laughs) i don't listen to music with those things turned on so this is this is where i was kind of like i agree with you to a point (laughs) i don't use normalization and the, and I've never really, uh, apart from checking masters and stuff, just to make sure if it, if I'm if I'm ever doing a master that I feel like oh I'm I am pushing this a bit, this is getting a bit hot, then I will use you know like the loudness penalty website or something like that to just audition it and make sure it's going to sound okay. I must admit though, I've never gone back after doing that and changed a master based on it. But the the other day. I, just, I had some time on my hands and I just thought, oh, I'll just listen to a, a few things. I'll audition a few things with, because I, I use Apple Music as a streaming service. I'll, I'll just, I'll put the sound check thing on and just <laughs> see what everything sounds like. And it is, it's quite shocking. 
it like it really is like i was listening to um i put on a couple of tracks from the new idols record which is really loud it's just a, like a really really loud record it sounds great but it's super super loud and super crunchy <laughs> but in the context with the sound check thing turned on it sounded tiny it sounded really small it didn't sound bad but it just sounded a, a lot quieter i guess as a mastering engineer especially you want your music to sound as good as it possibly can when you're listening to it so of course and there was stuff that was you know obviously not meant to be as loud as that record which sounded louder and that's just um i mean that just these things are supposed to make a a pleasant listening experience for everybody and i just thought well that's that's not particularly pleasant really to kind of have like a a more quiet tune you know be nice and full and audible and then this like raging idle tune comes in and it just sounds like a you know a bee in a jam jar i've never heard anyone say a bad word about normalizing on streaming services and things like that. So this is a real surprise to me. Well, I'm not saying a bad word about normalising, actually. I just say that. I, I'm, I don't... It's not a bad word against normalising. I think it's... I think we're still in a transitional period where there are still... People are still mastering records really loud. Because you, it's almost like you're trying to cover all bases, if you see what I mean. Because you still want someone who who doesn't use those things to still be able to kind of go, oh, you know, to, to hear it at the full volume that you've mastered it at and really get that experience from. So it's not really the normalizing's fault. I, I, I am with you. I think it would be a lot easier if it, was just, if it was just mandatory and that's how it happened. I think everybody's music would sound better, but without a doubt. I, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not actually saying a bad thing against normalizing, but until you get everybody on board, everybody who's mastering records to go right let's let's all just stick to this then i think it's we're in a bit of a weird time i think because people still use um like Bandcamp and stuff as well like in the kind of more diy circles I, I do a lot of independent stuff you know people use Bandcamp, and there's people are wanting still want to download the mp3s and, and the wavs and stuff and if they're not getting normalized then yeah you still want them to sound loud enough and i and i, I think there is a sweet spot to be honest I think there's a, there is a nice level where it, it won't sound really squished when it gets turned down by Spotify and it'll still sound nice and full and loud if normalization is off. Do you think a, a, a day is coming when normalization becomes the norm and there's loads of remastering work to be done on loads of records from the early 2000s especially? This is the problem because once once that stuff's been done, it's quite a big job to undo it. Like, you know, you're right, you're talking about, like, you know, going back to the original mixes, you know, it's not, um, you know, to remaster them in that way. And I don't think I've ever heard a remaster that's been quieter than its, <laughs> than its original version. Like, they always, they always sort of make them louder. Remastering's a funny, funny thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, to me, maybe as a, as a mix engineer, maybe this is just revealing my biases. But I always think if you're going to take a record and try and in some way modernize it why don't you just go back to the multi-tracks and then mix it from the ground up it's specifically mastering is what everyone tries to do yeah yeah no i, I agree i think that's uh, i mean it's a really there was those beatles um albums that got sort of reissued and recently weren't they and they did that they fundamentally went back to the mixes and stuff they just i mean they sound amazing like they really do they sound incredible and it's like yeah that couldn't be done just from a you know, from a stereo track. Mm. Although some people consider that absolute sacrilege to re redo anything. But 
like, who cares? You've still got the original version to listen to. It's not like those versions have been destroyed. Like, it's fine. <laughs> just just don't listen to the early versions. <laughs> so, um, Stephen, uh, if people want to find out about you and maybe get in touch to work with you, where can they go? Where's the best place to do that? Best place is probably my website. It's um, talltreesaudiomastering.com. There's a contact form and everything on there. There's all, all sorts of information and, and whatnot on there. I'm also I'm on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. I'm pretty easy to... Easy to find. Hunt down. <laughs> yeah, it's just at Tall Trees Audio Mastering. Okay. There'll be links to all those areas in the show notes of this episode. Fantastic. That's the, the easy way. <laughs> yes. So, Stephen, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope I didn't uh, give too many caffeine-fueled rambles at any point. No, no, it's good. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Phil. Cheers. So that's it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. If you enjoyed it, then please do leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I really appreciate each and every one of you who does. Please also share it with any friends and bandmates if you thought it was useful. If you may be having a chat about mastering, you're not sure whether you should do it or not, and you're kind of getting towards that kind of part of your release, have a listen to this episode and maybe share it with them and see what they think. I fully appreciate all of you. So if you're interested, we have a community on Facebook called the Music Survival Guide Community. A really, really original name. Who, who'd have thought of that? Hop over there for chats about music and band life with other musicians and industry people. And I will see you next week. <laughs>